Rumpelstiltskin always says that magic comes with a price. But for this price, you can get a nice piece of jewelry. Use code ONCEPOD for 10% off your first order at Unusual Magic Jewelry on Etsy. Click the link in the description. Hello, and welcome to the Once Again Podcast. We are your hosts, Ashley and Jason. On today's episode, we will be discussing Game of Thrones Season 1, Episode 1, Winter is Coming. This episode was written by David Benioff and D.B. Wise, adapted from George R.R. Martin's A Game of Thrones book, and is directed by Tim Van Patten. It premiered April 17th, 2011, and had a viewership of 2.22 million. A brief synopsis, Edward Stark is torn between his family and an old friend when asked to serve at the side of King Robert Baratheon. Viserys plans to wed his sister to a nomadic warlord in exchange for an army. And before we dive into the episode proper, I just want to discuss that in this series, each episode will be two parts. The first part will focus on the HBO series and its episodes, and the second will be a book comparison. Obviously, at a certain point, the show completely divorces itself from the books, and with the book series unfinished at the time of this recording, Ashley and I will be giving our speculations and theories about where the books are going. Also, after recapping the episode, Ashley and I will engage in a full spoilers discussion involving later seasons and episodes of the show, as well as material from the books. We will alert you when we reach the full spoiler section, so if you want to skip to the end of the podcast, we understand. You know, I do have one thing to say here, too, is I think we should have a brief discussion on, like, our own personal takeaways anyway from Game of Thrones and why we're covering this instead of going right into season two of Once Upon a Time. All right. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go I first? I mean, this was more so your idea, so. Okay. Well, if I'm being perfectly honest, you know, I wanted to cast a bigger net on the podcast to get more fish. Uh, not that I don't love Once Upon a Time, I do, but it kind of has, while it has millions of fans, it kind of has like a niche audience that's going to listen to it. Whereas Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire has a much larger audience. And I've seen people that ha- did podcasts on it their YouTube channels and their podcasts just blow up from covering Game of Thrones. So, um, and there's also House of Dragon is coming. So, oh yeah, true. There um, is that to look on the horizon as something yeah. we could cover that would be current and happening right now. Right. I, I mean, we've covered our, we talked about Loki and uh, monsters at work and stuff. We've we, we have we have done our one offs, but mm. I think you know I think it would be good to cover something at some point that's current and happening, you know, getting a lot a lot more new episodes instead of keep backing up to past. Right. Media. I agree. I agree. A note before we dive into it as well. The episode title is the house motto of House Stark and has been widely used in the marketing of the TV series, the books, and other spinoffs. The motto serves as a warning to prepare for winter 
because seasons are extremely unique and last for years in Westeros, as it shall bring chaos with it. I also, I didn't mention this, but obviously for people who have watched Game of Thrones, it's an HBO series and it's way more adult than Once Upon a Time was, or Once Upon a Time was, I should say. So if you have little listeners in the background, we're going to be covering topics on Game of Thrones that are way more adult than anything that was on Once Upon a Time. Uh, you know, and the good news is Game of Thrones season shorter, so that this won't be going on for too long. But also, we're still covering Disney movies and other stuff. So if you're looking for other content from us, you'll still have that weekly oh, yeah. for the rest of the year as well. And I mean, our podcast is called Once Again. We're going to dive back into Once Upon a Time. We're not, you know, ditching it after season one. We want to talk about every season and we want to talk about Once Upon a Time in Wonderland. And, you know, we, we're, we've covered some of the books. I have the uh, comic books that I have to talk about. Like there's going to be Once Upon a Time yeah. content coming. And, you know, I just want to say off the bat too, I will say I have watched season one of Game of Thrones already. And I think season two and season three, but I never finished it. Oh, I, really? Yeah, I did not want to watch until the books were done. But to be honest, I've kind of given up on that hope. So uh, I wanted, I, I, I like the books. I like having book content to read to go along with things. Mm -hmm. I had no interest in continuing to watch something because I didn't want the books room for me. I okay. didn't want that to happen because I would much rather read my material, read my media than consume it visually. So I didn't want the books written possibility. I don't think that's going to happen anymore. I think the book's probably going to take a different path, but. Let's, I, I just want to put a pin in that until we get to the full spoiler discussion. Cause okay. I have a, a lot to vent about. about oh, I that. am sure. Yeah. But let's dive into the episode in scene one. We see three rangers of the night's watch. Sir Wayman Royce, played by Rob Osterl, Will, played by Bronson Webb, and Garrett, played by Dermont Keeney. And they travel below the wall to travel north of it. Their mission is to investigate reports of wildling activity in the haunted forest. Will goes ahead on his horse, traveling through the empty, snowy forest before coming across a camp of mutilated corpses arranged in a pattern on the ground. A dead wildling girl is also present, stuck to a tree with cold, dead eyes. Frightened, Will, Will runs back to the others. Garrod suggests that they return to the wall as the wildlings were dead, but Waymar points out that the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, Jorah Mormont, will ask how they died. Will expresses his fright and explains that he has never seen anything like this before, for which he is mocked. Waymar tells him that he can run south of the wall if he wants, but he will be beheaded as a deserter. The group then sets off to find the wildling group again and investigate further. However, when they arrive at the camp, the corpses are gone. While Will looks around for tracks of the wildling, Garrett finds bloody clothing in the snow outside the camp. Waymar asks him what it is, but before Garrett can reply, a tall skeletal figure with blue eyes a white walker appears behind Waymore and kills him easily. Will, not far away, hears the screams and sees horses fleeing. He looks around and sees the dead wildling girl reanimated and alive, 
with icy blue eyes. Will turns and runs. After a moment, Garrett appears distantly ahead, and Will relaxes slightly to see him, until the White Walker appears behind Garrett and slices his head off. Still dripping with blood, the White Walker throws the severed head at Will's feet. And I wrote down that this is a fantastic opening scene. It tells you that this world is fantastic, cold, no pun intended, and cruel. Your actions have severe consequences, and at any moment, any character can die. Yeah, I I would say this is just a really good opening scene. Okay. I didn't write it down, but we go into the opening credits here, and I did write down, does Game of Thrones have the greatest opening credits sequence in television history? Yes, it does. Not my opinion. It's a fact. It's, it's a fact. It is, it is fairly iconic, and I think... Yeah. I think if there's anything that came out of the show, it's probably that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the music is great, but for me, it's the, I don't know if it's animation or what you want to call it, but the- It's definitely animation, yeah. The locations just being built as they're there and everything, like, and it shows you these are the important places, you know, and I like it. So we move on to scene two. Sometime later, Will has fled south of the wall in terror of the White Walker threat rather than return to warn Castle Black. He is apprehended by outsiders loyal to House Stark, the Wardens of the North, and is taken to Lord Eddard Stark. And in my note, I wrote here, Castle Black and Winterfell are over 650 miles apart. Pretty impressive for Will to make on foot. Man was scared to death. Of course he's gonna... (laughs) Yeah. His feet fly. So we move on to scene three where we're introduced to a 10-year-old Bran Stark, played by Isaac Hempstead Wright. He's practicing archery with his elder brother, Rob, played by Richard Madden, and his half-brother, John, played by Kit Harrington, his father's bastard. The two parents, Lord Eddard Ned Stark, played by Sean Bean, and Lady Catelyn Stark, played by Michelle Farrelly, watch him. And my note for this scene was Jon Snow's first line saying, go on, father is watching. And then there's a pause and he says, and your mother. It tells you everything you need to know about the relationship between Jon Snow and Lady Stark. Yeah, I think it also, you know, it definitely, since there's a way to be like, okay, so he is a bastard. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, why is he- Without him saying that, you wouldn't know that at this moment. Mm-hmm. Is he from a previous marriage? Like, blah, blah, blah. no, no. He's, he's a bastard. Although in our book discussion, maybe we'll have different thoughts. Meanwhile, inside Winterfell, Eddard's daughters, Arya, played by Maisie Williams, and Sansa, played by Sophie Turner, are sewing. Arya hears the sounds of arrows being fired outside and rushes out. Bran prepares to shoot when Arya shoots an arrow out from behind him, hitting the middle of the target, sending everyone else laughing. Bran, slightly annoyed, chases Arya. Eddard is approached by Roddick Cassell, played by Ron Donachi, who tells him that a Night's Watch deserter has been found and that Eddard will need to execute him. Eddard tells Catelyn he intends to take Bran this time, but she insists Ten is too young to see an execution, though Eddard replies that he will not be Ten forever and winter is coming. So my note for here says, uh, Kat, you know, saying 10 is too young to see such things. And 
I know the characters on the show are older, but John and Rob are 15 in the books and Ned was 15 when he went to war. Are 10 and 15 really that different? Hey, I'm not sure she's very concerned what's going on with John, but uh, not true. You know, I think 10 and 15 are fairly different. I mean, consider yourself when you were 10 and then consider yourself when you were 15. Like you're already shifting to be a completely different person. Like, yeah, but I mean, in, in this world where the average person would live to be 30, I'm guessing, and uh, the nobles might live into their 60s or 70s. You're right, because 10-year-olds would probably be already doing hard work. Yeah, you know, 12 if it was like a 12-year-old family. If, if you're yeah. like a, a 12-year-old girl, you're being sold off for marriage already. True, but like I also like I'm thinking about like farm workers or like mm-hmm. anybody in trades. Like their kids are immediately going to be helping out by like age of like six. Like realistically, yeah, like and they're already going to be doing hard labor. Yeah, and while Ned walks away, Catelyn looks down at the courtyard and stares with disdain towards John, the bastard son of her husband, the child she despises. In the next scene, scene four. Ned takes Rob, John, and Bran to witness the execution. His ward, Theon Greyjoy, played by Alfie Allen, is also present, as well as Roger Cassell and Jory Cassell, played by Jamie Sivers, two of his household. Will tells Eddard he knows he is a deserter, but tries to warn him about the White Walkers. He also asks that the word of his desertion and execution be sent to his mother. John tells Bran not to look away. Will is executed by Eddard, who uses the ancestral Valerian blade of their house, Ice. Bran flinches slightly, which his brothers praise him for. While the others turn to return to the castle, Eddard asks Bran if he knows why it was done. Bran explains to him it's because he was a deserter, until Ned asks more specifically why it was him who had to do it. Eddard then goes on to explain the man who passes the sentence must swing the sword. When Bran asks if it is true about the White Walkers, Eddard dismisses it as a madman's rambling, insisting that the Walkers have been gone for centuries. The party sets out to return to Winterfell, and I wrote down in my notes here the location where Will is executed is clearly some sort of ancient rock formation where other executions have taken place before. Will it factor in later in the show? Hmm. Which, since you haven't seen the later seasons, I'm guessing you don't know the answer. I actually don't know the answer. So, (laughs) We move on to scene five. On the way back to the castle, the party finds a stag dead in the road, partially disemboweled. Theon wonders if it is the work of a mountain lion, but Eddard states that none live in the area. Looking for what killed it, they find a rare dead female direwolf slightly off the road, killed with a stag antler piece broken in her throat. The female died after giving birth, and her five pups huddled by the the corpse for warmth. Eddard abdicates, killing the pups out of mercy, rather than have them starve to death, but Jon Snow convinces his father that this is an omen. The direwolf is the symbol of House Stark, and Eddard has five true-born children. With Bran Looking on beseechingly, Eddard agrees to allow it, but only if they care for and raise the pups themselves. Even if one should die, the owner will be the one to bury it. Just as the party leaves, John finds a sixth pup, an albino runt of the litter. 
Theon mockingly points out that this one belongs to John, but John nonetheless adopts the sixth pup. And in my note here, I wrote down that this was a real dead stag, not a prop that was used for the scene where the dire wolf pups are found. The actors found the smell during the filming of the scene revolting as it had been dead for two days at that point and was decomposing. Why? Use a fake one. I, I think it's to save money. Probably. Yeah. Found a real dead stack. Should we just use that? Yeah. I mean, think about, well, I don't know. In living in Pennsylvania, certain times of the year, you find a lot of dead deer on the side of the road. So. I mean, correct. Yeah. But like... Uh, yeah, I imagine it was just to save money. Also, just imagine being the dad yeah. that tells your kids, yeah, take some wolf pups, here you go. Yeah. In scene six, we go to King's Landing, the capital of the Seven Kingdoms. The bells ring out to commemorate the death of Lord John Aaron, the Hand of the King. As the Silent Sisters prepare his body for burial, Queen Cersei Lannister, played by Lena Headley, looks on. As her twin brother, Sir Jamie Lannister, played by Nikolai Coster Waldo, approaches, she confesses to him that she fears John Aaron dis discovered something that he shouldn't have before his death and may have told someone. He tells her not to worry, since if the king knew the truth, they'd be dead already. She tells him he should be the new hand of the king, but he doesn't want the job considering it too much work. Cersei accuses him of taking nothing seriously reminding him of the time he jumped off the cliffs at their home, Castley Rock. Jamie jokes that there was nothing to worry about until she told their father. In scene seven, a raven arrives at Winterfell, bearing the news of John Aaron's death. Lady Catelyn Stark receives it and makes her way immediately to the godswood, where she finds her husband cleaning his sword. Catelyn informs him of the death of John Aaron, which upsets Ned as Aaron was like a father to him. He and Robert Baratheon were both fostered at the Eyrie by him. Catelyn then tells him Robert is coming north as well with his royal court. Ned reflects that if he's coming so far north, he can only want one thing. Catelyn reminds him that if Robert offers to make Eddard the new hand of the king, he can always reject. And I have a behind the scenes note here. The pool in the Winterfell Godswood was filled with black paint to make it more reflective. My only thing here is I don't like the look of the godswood. Like, I forgot that that's where they were supposed to be. Yeah. Well, like, because it doesn't, it just looks like a forest. Like, a regular forest. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll discuss it in our book episodes, especially for It the doesn't feel reverent enough. Like, it doesn't right. feel like it's supposed to be something. It feels like... We're just sitting outside the castle in the woods, which is not really what they're doing. So. Right. Well, everything in the show, especially the first season, is much smaller than it is in the books. Purposely so. Well, not purposely on the show's end, but I know when George R. R. Martin was writing the books, he was writing them purposely to not be able to be adapted into a movie or TV show. Like he made them bigger than they should be for that reason. He made these giant castles, like Winterfell, in the show is so small compared to Winterfell in the books. Uh, it has no outer wall. It doesn't have like a city inside of it. It doesn't have this giant forest that makes up the God's wood. Like it's just, everything's much smaller. So, uh, but we're saving that for the book episode. 
Yeah. <laughs> Moving right along. In scene eight, Winterfell prepares for guests. Catelyn wants to make sure that Tyrion Lannister, the queen's younger brother, has enough candles as she hears he is an avid reader. John, Rob, and Theon are groomed while gossiping about Queen Cersei, who is reportedly a great beauty. And a behind-the-scenes note here, actors Kit Harington, Alfie Allen, and Richard Madden prepared for the haircutting scene in which all three were shirtless by engaging in vigor vigorous exercises and holding their breath to enhance their abs to the hilarity of producer David Benioff. Oh, God. Men are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you hear, listen, you hear actors talk about this all the time. Have you ever heard uh, Hugh Jackman talk about what he did to prepare for Wolverine? Like scenes where he would have to shoot with his shirt off. He wouldn't drink water for like two days so that he would, his body would get super dehydrated. So his muscles were just that more popped out. Like it, it it's stupid, but that's, it's one of the things they do. In scene nine, we see Bran climbing Winterfell watching the royal party arrive on the horizon. As he makes his way down, his mother, Catelyn, catches him and tells him off for climbing. She makes Bran promise not to do it anymore, and he agrees until Catelyn tells him that he always looks at his feet before lying. Bran giggles and runs off, and Catelyn prepares for the royal arrival. In scene 10, Arya Stark watches the king's men arrive as they flood through the gates of Winterfell. She sees Prince Joffrey, played by Jack Gleason, as well as his personal bodyguard, Sander Clegane, a.k.a. the Hound, played by Rory McCann. She admires his helm, and Arya rushes back to the courtyard late, which annoys Sansa. King Robert, played by Mark Addy, arrives on his horseback, while Queen Cersei is in a large wheelhouse with her two younger children, Prince Tommen, played by Colum Wary, and Princess Marcella, played by Amy Richardson. Joffrey rides in and catches Sansa's eye. Meanwhile, Lord Eddard presents his household to King Robert. The two greet each other warmly before Robert demands to see the crypts and pay his respects to Eddard's deceased sister, Lyanna, whom Robert had intended to marry before her death. Queen Cersei points out that they had been riding for a month and that surely the dead could wait. Robert ignores her, taking Ned to the crypts. After they both depart, Cersei sends Jamie to find their younger brother, Tyrion. And I have one note here written down and a couple other ones in my head. Mark Addy's costume was so heavy that he couldn't get off his horse without steps and the help of three people. So in editing, they had to cut away when he starts to dismount and then cut back to see him drop on the ground. In the book, King Robert is a taller man, but Mark Addy's performance made his character seem imposing. Uh, also, one of the notes that I didn't put down was that the wheelhouse that Queen Cersei was traveling in actually crashed into Winterfell's uh, wall, and it had to be rebuilt. Yeah, so, you know. Some... Also, we don't see the other Lannister kids, like the other Baratheon kids, do we? We just see Joffrey, right? Like, no, they're, they're in the wheelhouse. I think we see the other two in the scene. They get out of the wheelhouse with uh, Cersei. And they're in the episode for a little bit, a little bit later. Yeah, you know, they're also played by different actors in later seasons. But I just wanted to give credit to the actors that were there as their role showed up, I guess I should say. We move on to scene 11. In the crypts, Eddard asks Robert to tell him about John Aaron, 
The king informs him that the fever burned right through him. The pair reflect on their love for the man who fostered and raised them both as wards. Robert tells Eddard that he needs him in King's Landing. He offers him the role of Hand of the King. Eddard immediately falls to one knee, saying he isn't worthy of the honor, to which Robert replies that he isn't trying to honor him. The king reminds him how Eddard helped him, helped him win the Iron Throne, saying that he should now help him hold it. And if Lyanna had lived, they would have been bound by blood. Robert then goes on to say that it is not too late and offers a proposal. If Eddard becomes Hand, he will betroth his son, Prince Joffrey, the heir to the throne, to Eddard's eldest daughter, Sansa. And the crypts under Winterfell are normally a wine cellar and are used in later episodes for a cell under the Red Keep and King's Landing. Interesting. So moving right along, in scene 12, we arrive at a brothel outside of Winterfell. Tyrion Lannister, played by Peter Dinklage, enjoys the attention of a prostitute named Roz, played by Esme Bianco. Jamie arrives, telling Tyrion that he is wanted by the royal party and will need to attend the feast in the evening. Tyrion jokes that he has begun the feast a little early, and then Jamie, in hopes of hurrying things along, brings three more prostitutes in for Tyrion. I love a brother that knows you so well. Yeah. Uh, my I am- only- my only note for this scene is that uh, Roz is the first non-book character, but I think she's a great addition to the show. So in scene 13, we're back in the crypts, and the king offers up his prayers at the tomb of Liana, Eddard's late sister, whom Robert was betrothed to before she was allegedly kidnapped by Prince Rhaegar Targaryen. Lyanna died shortly after she was found. He tells Eddard that in his dreams, he kills Rhaegar every night anew. Eddard reminds him that House Targaryen was destroyed, but Robert replies, not all of them. And that transitions to scene 14, across the narrow city. Oh, uh, I, I thought said, you had some- Ooh, spooky. Yeah, yeah. Like, not all of them. I wonder um, who we're going to see next. Yeah. Okay. You're right. Across the narrow sea, in the free city of Pentos, Daenerys Targaryen, played by Amelia Clark, an exiled princess, is approached by her brother Viserys, played by Harry Lloyd, who has a gown for her to inspect. He tells her she must look perfect for Khal Drogo, the leader of the Dothraki tribe he intends to marry her to in return for his army. Viserys slips off his sister's dress and fondles her breast. Daenerys stays silent, looking the other way until Viserys leaves. She then steps into a hot bath that has just been drawn. This greatly distresses her maid, who believes the water will scald her. However, Daenerys seems not to notice it and appears to be unharmed. And I have a note here that some early scenes in Malta were filmed with Amelia Clark and Harry Lloyd using violet contact lenses. As in the novels, the Targaryens have violet-colored eyes. However, the lenses did not look right and were distracting the actors from their performance, so they were dropped. So my honest opinion on that little fact there is just get other violet contact lenses Yeah, that aren't as like bright or something. And B, you're an actor, your job is to deal with these things, no offense. Yeah. And if that's distracting enough for you not to be able to act, I'm concerned about your acting ability. 
it, it's interesting. I enjoyed this show so much. I remember very much how I felt watching the first season of it. And a lot of it confused me because there's a lot of backstory that you don't get. And like, it mo- especially the pilot episode moves really fast. I remember thinking that the Lannisters and the Targaryens were related because like they all had blonde hair. Like I was like, oh, like, and that's why Robert's king because he married one of them, blah, blah, blah. So if they had had the purple eyes or violet eyes, I guess I should say, I always more so think of them as purple eyes, but if they had had those eye contacts in, it would have made a more distinguishing characteristic because like their silver hair, especially in the first season, doesn't really look silver. It looks blonde. Yeah, it's definitely not the right shade of color. Right. Like, I don't think, especially the Targaryen's supposed to be much more otherworldly almost in their looks. Like they're, think like elves and stuff like that is the way I think of them more so than like agreed humans like I know they're humans but like they don't look that way completely is the way I think about it yeah and they're like there and they is... don't look like that in the show right and if the reason for not having violet eyes is seriously because the contacts were distracting a get other ones that work better and b why are your actors that distracted by contacts like I don't understand that like your job is to act you have to act through all sorts of crazy stuff all the time you can't can't deal with that yeah agreed but moving back into the plot in scene 15 a short time later cal drogo played by jason momoa oh yeah arrives at the estate (laughs) i think i'm supposed to be the one saying oh yeah Uh, listen when it comes to (laughs) when it comes to jason momoa i think anyone can say oh yeah he's quite a handsome man but he arrives at the estate daenerys and viserys have been staying at owned by a magister named Illyrio Mopatis. And Illyrio is portrayed by Roger Allum. After taking a glance at Daenerys, Drogo rides away without dismounting from his horse. Viserys is concerned, but Illyrio assures him that if he did not approve of Daenerys, they would have known. And I have a note written here that Viserys asks Illyrio where the Dothraki are, and Illyrio responds that they are not known for the their punctuality. So George R. R. Martin is a Dothraki. <laughs> Obviously. I feel bad saying that, but you know, at the same Listen, time. That man is a lot of things. Yeah. He's certainly a great writer amongst them, but a lot of other things too that annoy me. <laughs> he is certainly not our <laughs> um as Neil Gaiman made very clear. Moving on to scene 16. Illyrio and Viserys discuss the quest to sail back to Westeros with Drogo's army, and Viserys inquires when the wedding will take place. Daenerys blurts out that she does not want to marry Drogo and wants to go home. Viserys turns around to her and demands how they are supposed to go home. He then offers a solution with Cal Drogo's army, which is what they need to retake their father's throne from Robert Baratheon. Viserys adds that he would let his sister be raped by all 40,000 of Drogo's men and their horses if it meant getting his throne back. And the worst brother award goes to... Yeah. Do you want to discuss it now or should we save it for our book episode about Viserys and his background? I'll, I'll just talk about it now. Maybe we'll talk about it later too. Yeah. I mean, he was a child when everything got taken away from him. I think he was eight years old. And 
this whole time he's been responsible for protecting his sister. He is an awful, awful brother. Don't get me wrong, but it's kind of understandable, especially considering Targaryens have a tendency to go crazy. Why Viserys is such an awful person. Like, you know, he had this great life. He was a prince for crying out loud. Oh, I'm not saying I don't understand it, but also like, I think the thing is too, is like, Everybody in the show is just trying to get their place and like mm-hmm. trying to get get their goods essentially. I understand. Yeah. But I think most of them don't try to like sell their family members. They do, but not like that hardcore. Like he imagine saying, like, yeah, I I let all of his men and their horses rape you if I had to. Like Yeah. Yeah, to your own sister. What? Like you don't yeah. need like he doesn't need to verbalize those things. Yeah. And you know, you're right. Cause I mean, they clearly have a great life right now with Illyrio. And I mean, like, people still give him some level of respect given that he is a Targaryen. We can discuss Illyrio in the books because he's a very different character there, but he's he's Illyrio is not really anyone here the only kind of thing we get out of it is in the earlier scene where Daenerys is like but why is he doing all this I don't Mm -hmm. understand like we're not giving him anything and he's doing a lot for free which good on her for being like hey why is he doing this nobody gives anything for free and he has been doing a lot for free yeah he pops up once more in season one and then he's mentioned again in season five but he is a very small small character in the show and has a much bigger part in the book. So we move on to scene 17. While Catelyn fixes Sansa's hair, they speak about Prince Joffrey. Sansa worries that he will not like her, but Catelyn says that that would make him the stupidest prince that has ever been. And I have here Sansa's line of saying, please tell father to say yes to being hand of the king. It is the only thing I've ever wanted. And I wrote down, oh, my sweet summer child. Jason is the only thing she's ever wanted. Yeah, you know, I'm not, I, Sansa on the show, I'm not a fan of, and Sansa in the book, I like even less, but, um, she's not really good in no, any place, but no. like, ugh. I don't, I don't blame her though, because she's basically just this little princess that's been raised on stories of knights and valor and everything like that. So, yeah, she's, she's a victim of, I guess poor parenting is the only way to put it. Like Eddard and Catelyn really didn't prepare her for the world as it is. In scene 18, we briefly see Robert drunk and mingling with some common women in view of Queen Cersei. Outside the feast, the bastard Jon Snow works at his sword practice, angry that Catelyn thought it would be inappropriate that a bastard should attend the feast. His uncle, Benjen Stark, played by Joseph Mai first ranger of the night's watch arrives to join the feast and john asks him to take him back to the wall with him benjen explains that the night's watch vows would require john to go celibate and john says that that would not be a problem benjen tells him to wait before making such a hasty decision and until he has known love he will not know what he's giving up benjen goes inside for the feast I wrote down, what does Benjen mean here? Perhaps this is more of a spoiler discussion or a book discussion. Because, uh, you know, telling John to wait until he f- knows what he's missing. I think there's a lot about Benjen's character that we can get into in, in our book theories and everything. Yeah. 
I think so, vengeance is much more interesting in the book too, but yeah, I and, feel like that's for a lot of characters that aren't like our main mm-hmm. core cast. Yeah. And in the brief interaction that's coming up shortly between Benjen and Ned, um, they seem to have a loving relationship. I more so get the vibe in the book that they do not have this loving relationship between them. But Tyrion Lannister arrives and identifies Jon Snow as the bastard, which seemingly offends him. Tyrion tells him that he should take the insult and wear it like armor so that no one can hurt him with it. When Jon angrily asks Tyrion what he would know about being a bastard, Tyrion coolly replies that all dwarfs are bastards in their father's eyes. You know, Tyrion, when he's written by George, is just magnifique. (laughs) He's perfect. In scene 19, in the feast hall, Ned and Benjen briefly discuss the events of the episode so far. Here we see a brotherly bond between them. And that's what I was talking about. We see this relationship where they care for each other. I get a different vibe in the books between the two of them, but we'll discuss that in the next episode, I guess. Catelyn asks Cersei if this is her first time in the North, to which the Queen informs her that it is, describing it as a wonderful country. Sansa comes over, and Cersei asks how old she is, and if she is still growing. Sansa replies that she is 13 and thinks so. When Cersei asks if she has bled yet, Sansa uncomfortably tells her that she hasn't, before proudly stating that she has made her dress. After Sansa leaves, Cersei tells Catelyn that they may share a grandchild one day, and Sansa will do well in the capital. Meanwhile, Sansa catches eyes with Prince Joffrey. Jamie Lannister blocks Eddard's path through the hall and tells him that it would be good to have him in the capital to oppose him in tourneys. Eddard says that he doesn't fight in tournaments because when he fights a man for real, he doesn't want him to know what he can do. Amused, Jamie mocks him for this. Meanwhile, Arya throws food at Sansa and Rob takes her away. I do like the little like discussion between Catelyn and Cersei mm-hmm. about their having a grandchild one day. Mm-hmm. I do like the tension. I like the like, you know, do they like each other? Who knows? That kind of vibe. I Right. For me, my favorite part of this scene is the exchange between Ned and Jamie. I just I, I love the line like where, where he says like he doesn't he doesn't fight in tournaments because when he fights a man for real he doesn't want him to know what he could do. I mean it's a really smart yeah. thing to think. Yeah, and Jamie, you know, Jamie Lannister, he's one of, if not the greatest swordsman in Westeros at this time. So he's just like, oh, well, good for you. Like, you know, that's it doesn't matter. Because uh, Jamie likes to be the center of attention. Yeah. Well, he's 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 always been the best since he He's was a the kid. Good-looking, attention-seeking kind of knight. Like, yeah, ah, yes, me. Yeah, he's a he's a complex ca- uh, character later on, but right now he's just the handsome man who gets everything that he wants. In scene twenty, later that night, Eddard and Catelyn receive a letter delivered to them by Maester Lewin, who is played by Donald Sumter, and it is a message from the Eyrie. The letter is from Catelyn's sister, Lady Liza Aaron, the widow of John Aaron. In the letter, Liza says that John Aaron was murdered by the Lannisters and that they plan to conspire against King Robert. Lewin counsels Eddard that he should accept Robert's offer to be hand so that he can investigate the truth of the matter and protect the king. 
Eddard, while he would prefer to stay in Winterfell, agrees with Lewin and accepts the offer. And my only note here is I'm going to have a lot to say about this scene when we get to the book discussion. Yeah. In pretty much the only, I, I feel like a lot of things, it's like, yeah, we can talk about it, but like, it's more important in context of book content. Yeah. So. Yeah. In scene 21, we're back in Pentos and Daenerys marries Cal Drogo and a great celebration is held. Several duels are held in which many die and many men and women have sex in front of everyone. Illyrio tells them that the death is a good sign as a Dothraki wedding without at least three deaths is considered a dull affair. Drogo and... Yes, go ahead. That is the kind of wedding I want to go oh. to. Oh, okay. All right. I thought you were about to say have, but, you know, uh, you know, uh, sure, whatever. I guess it'd be entertaining, especially for the time period. Why not? So Drogo and Daenerys receive many gifts, but for Danny, two are particularly interesting. The first is a selection of books containing stories and songs from the Seven Kingdoms given to her by Sir Jorah Mormont was portrayed by Ian Glenn, an exiled knight of House Mormont. Sir Jorah swears fealty to Viserys as king and offers him his support and advice, which is accepted. The second gift of interest is a box containing three beautiful scaly stones. According to Illyrio, these are dragon eggs from the Shadowlands beyond Ashai and have turned to stone with the passing of time. Danny appears to feel some connection with the eggs, but brushes it off for the time being. For his gift, Drogo gives Daenerys a beautiful white mare. Viserys tells his sister to make Drogo happy. Drogo and Daenerys ride off to the shore and consummate their marriage on the beach at sunset. Daenerys is clearly upset. I have a few notes here, but is there anything you'd like to say first or... No, I mean, okay. of course she said this is, she's been sold off to marriage and yeah. it's rapey. <laughs> oh, extremely. What else is new for this show? Yeah. During Daenerys's wedding feast, when one of the Dothraki disembowels another, Cal Drogo looks on in approval and utters an unsubtitled line. It was not subtitled because it wasn't part of the developed Dothraki language but an ab-libbed line by Jason Momoa. The line he said was, and I hope I'm saying this right, E.T. Waka, which is from the refrain of a well-known, and I hope I'm saying this right, Moria Haka, or war dance. Momoa himself performed a Moria Haka in his audition tape for the role of Kyle Drogo. And to make the line fit within universe, language consultant David J. Pearson later retroactively established that what Drogo said in Dothraki was iti oka, meaning test your might. And this is an in-joke reference to the line from the infamously violent Mortal Kombat video game. No. No, okay. Um, Don't like that. Okay. <laughs> Filming the wedding scene on the beach was disrupted by a gale from the sea, that partially demolished the set. And the Maltese authorities were also dubious about the nudity in the scene, but ultimately allowed the shooting to continue. Meaning they didn't like- the amount of nudity in this entire yeah. show? 
You know, it's funny too, since I now know that you haven't seen the later seasons, the nudity level starts to drop off in later seasons. And even I would say the violence drops off too. Like it's still a violent show, but not as violent as it was in the beginning. But we'll get there when we get there. I have my opinions, even not seeing them. Like we'll get there when we get the yeah. spoiler section. Yeah, we're almost there. Yeah. So we move on to scene 22. Tyrion and the Hound talk about the upcoming hunt outside Winterfell. Sandor says he didn't have Tyrion down as a hunter, but Tyrion jokes that he is the greatest in the land, that his spear never misses, and the Hound quips that it's not hunting if you pay for it. Ha ha ha, a sex joke. Meanwhile, Robert asks Ned if he is still as good with the spear as he once was. Eddard tells him that he isn't, but he's still better than Robert, who laughs and thanks him for accepting the offer to become Hand of the King. Robert calls him the last loyal friend that he's got. And with that, the king's party rides off for the hunt. In scene 23, Bran begins some climbing, but while climbing a broken tower, he hears someone moaning. He peers through a window and finds Queen Cersei and her twin brother, Jaime Lannister, having sex. Cersei spots him and warns Jaime, who grabs Bran. Jamie looks out the window to make sure no one else is watching and only sees Summer, Bran's dire wolf. He asks Bran how old he is. When Bran replies 10, Jamie remarks with a sigh, the things I do for love. And with that, he pushes Bran out the window. And my only note for this scene is in the tower sex scene, Lena Headley is replaced with a body double for the nude parts. She was pregnant when this episode was shot. So there are a lot of scenes of her where Cersei is filmed standing or sitting behind a table or wearing a coat with thick fur uh, trim or dresses with long sleeves that she holds in front of herself to hide the pregnancy. Huh. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I will say for this, like, even though we've seen a lot of nudity and violence, this is like one of those moments where you're like, oh, oh, this is the kind of show we're watching. We just right. pushed one of our main characters out a window. Yeah. After seeing a okay. brother, after seeing a brother and sister have sex, yeah. Okay, what are we watching? Yeah, yeah. With that, I think we should move on to our full spoiler discussion section. Yeah. So, if anyone wants to tune out and just skip ahead to the end of the episode, fine by us. So, the first note that I have here is that during the scenes where the seven Starks welcome King Robert. He hugs Ned and Catelyn, ruffles Rickon's hair, and shakes hands with Rob. Interestingly, all the four Starks with whom Robert makes physical contact with are subsequently killed. The three Starks with whom Robert does not touch survive the show. This strange contrast, which can be dismissed as mere coincidence, led to a fan theory that Robert's touch of death somehow cursed the Starks, similar to the alleged curse of Hall. Yeah. So we're in the full spoiler discussion. You know, you know, you know, without even having watched it, the show disappointed its audience with its ending and everything. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like I said, I chose not to watch it mostly from the perspective of somebody that I was, when I was first introduced to the show, I was introduced to the first couple episodes of season one. And I said, cool, I want to read the books first and kind of blew through the books very quick. Mm-hmm. And quickly realized that the show was kind of keeping with the books as much as possible. Like it was impressive how close in some 
respects the books are like the show is the books but i was also like no we get to points where i'm like that is definitely not something i picked up on in the Mm. books Mm. so like you know i knew that i didn't want to finish watching with the idea that i wanted to read it because i didn't want to be spoiled or have expectations based off of a tv show that was clearly not going the direction the books Mm -hmm. were going either Agreed. For me, I watched the show first up to season four. I got through season four and, you know, spoilers. When Oberyn Martell is killed, I said, blank this show, because I don't want to have to edit edit bleeping myself. I said, blank this show. And I read the books. And at that time, like now, there were only five published in season five is when they really, really, really started changing things. I mean, there were, there's been minor changes since episode one. And then there's also been major changes since episode one. But um, season five is where they went completely off book. Supposedly, they had notes from George R. R. Martin where the story was going. But I have very strong feelings that the book series, which like you, I don't think will be completed. Um, I think George is going to pass away before that happens and another writer will step in and finish the book series and i'm not saying that because like his health is bad or anything like that i think i think the problem is the way he writes and now i think it's hard to write when there's a lot of expectations on you especially when those expectations are coming from people that now don't like the thing so much Mm -hmm. because of what they now expect to happen right and I think this is why we shouldn't be doing multimedia things before the original media is finished. The books should have been finished before we started Agreed. making television shows or anything about them. Because I think the books would be finished by now if he, I think he does not feel the same passion for it. Yeah. And I wouldn't either. Well, I would not want to continue writing at this point myself. Even, even if the same thing happens that happened in the show, which, you know, again, spoilers, Daenerys goes crazy, John kills her. Let's say that happens in the books, which I have different feelings about. I actually don't have a problem with what happened in the show. I have a problem with how they did it. Um, how we got there. And I do think yeah. that I think Martin would be way better at explaining how we got there. Yes. And I do think part of the problem is the reason the show was good to start out with is because we were basing it off of something that was already well written and well established and good. And Mm -hmm. then that thing no longer existed at a certain point. And that's when things start to go off the rails. When the plot does not exist, the well written material of George R. R. Martin does not exist. So you can't base it off of that. So you're left with very vague, deep, even if they had a vague outline, it was gonna, they don't have every little detail. They can't be like, okay, this is exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. For, for me, the major criticism of the show was cutting Aegon from the, from the show. You know, whatever you want to, uh, Aegon, Phaegon, Young Griff, whatever you want to call him. I know book readers think that he's just a red herring and maybe he is just a red herring, but the characters in that universe don't know that. He has silver hair and purple eyes. He's another Targaryen. Like, unless... Yeah, 
he exists is the thing and yeah so unless you know he gets eaten by one of the dragons or something like another character well not eaten but another character dies that's a major character and and that makes me think of the whole what do i want to say the martells what happens to them in the show is disgusting because their plot is so much more clever in the books and we don't even have their full plot yet (sighs) uh yeah i like i said it's it's definitely I don't know. It, it's rough to talk about the show in a way because I'm like, you know, I I think the show is okay, but I do it has a lot of failings mm-hmm. and I think talking about the book will be more fun. I think there's more trust there because I think the characters are much more interesting in their book forms. Agreed. I agree with you that they shouldn't have made the show before George R. R. Martin finished the books. I, I watched it's it. always like even if even if he had finished them by now the fact that the show had was happening and that there were lots of new fans and lots of things it would have affected the outcome no matter what I think right of the books because you know and like not to go completely off topic but like I feel that way about Harry Potter all the time and Harry Potter has the same thing they started right. making movies before the books were done and you can definitely tell that by the end the fact that the movies had got gained so gained so much popularity affected the outcome of the books and affected the outcome of the story and I don't think the books would have gone that way yeah if we if the movies had not been made had had waited even she who should not be named has directly said that she put Ron and Hermione together because she liked those actors and thought that they would be a cute couple in real life together. Like that affects a major part of the book. Um, You know, whatever. But like I said, I I think they're like, and I think the same thing happens here. I think it's hard to differentiate the two. Like Mm. as a writer, like you're going to see people being like, oh, well, I like want this and I'm excited. I think this and like, it's going to, to get in your head and you're going to be persuaded to do things that you might not want to do mm-hmm. and I, I that's also why I don't think we're getting the books because I, I don't think like he writes very slowly he writes the way he writes and I respect the process but I think his style of writing doesn't work for now for what he's now has to accomplish he has to agree make it past a lot of hurdles there's so much pressure on him and even with what we're saying like that he'll explain it better than the show did even if it is the same thing that's that's pressure too like it's like yeah like it's it's like oh yeah like i said there's a lot of expectation and i would not want to be with him right now trying to write that myself i mm. i can't imagine having that much pressure to write and I'm sure, like you said, he was trying to make the world as possible so it couldn't be made into books and movies and mm-hmm. movies and television. And I think he probably regrets in some ways letting this happen. Yeah. I know I watched an interview with him years ago where he said he knew as soon as Lord of the Rings won Best Picture at the Oscars that they were going to come for A Song of Ice and Fire, like that Hollywood was going to like be forcing him to make it. And he said the only reason this adapting his books, uh, Dan and Dave weren't the first people to approach him. He was approached for years about adapting it. And the only reason that he let Dan and Dave adapt the show or adapt the books into a show, he had a very long conversation with them. 
and he asked them one question. He said, who's Jon Snow's mother? To see if they had actually read the book series. And he has never revealed the answer that they gave, and they've never revealed the answer that they gave. The show implies that they think Lyanna Stark is Jon Snow's mother, and we'll get into all that, but you and I have differing opinions about that, or differing opinions from them. I think we're in similar opinions about who Jon Snow's mother really is, but yeah, it's a a lot for him, and I don't, you know, I get it. It gave George money to do whatever he wanted to do. Uh, he he never has to worry about money again from having the show adapted. I think, though, if personally, if I had been him, I don't know if I could have turned it down. But if I had the strength to turn down the offer, or what I should say is, I would rather him <clears throat> had had. Oh, I can't think of the name of it now. He has a vampire story that's about these vampires in. New Orleans or semi in New Orleans because they're mm-hmm. on the Mississippi River, I think, in the early 20th century, I want to say maybe 19th century. I can't remember because it's been some time since I yeah. read it. But that is fantastic. He could have had that adapted into a show. And I th- still he think it has, should be. So he's also, he doesn't write it by himself, but he's in charge of the wild card series. Yeah. And my God, if that ever gets adapted, and I think at some point it might. Yeah. I don't know if he'd agree to it after Game of Thrones, but, uh, I, you know, it's a good series. I've heard some of it on audiobook. I've read some of it too. It's a good series. I think it would play interestingly if we got it. He's good at creating. He's good at what he does, but. Agreed. So yeah, I I don't know. Is there anything else you want to say in our full spoiler discussion or should uh, we just go into, since we've vented, should we just go into the outro? I think we can go into the outro. I feel like we're going to be venting like this every week. I don't know about every week because uh, uh, granted, I, especially this first season, I really love this show. Like I said, I didn't have a problem with what happened. In I the do end. think it's because it keeps so hardcore to the book. Like because I'm reading, we're reading the book as we're doing this. I yeah. think I'm like, wow, they actually said that line in the show. Like mm-hmm. it's surprising to me how like, very one for one we get sometimes like right. which is so surprising because that's like I said that's not what you expect oddly enough my favorite scene from the whole series isn't in the books however it was an episode that was written by George R. R. Martin um and we'll get there I think it's season or I think it's episode five of season one or somewhere episode five or episode six I can't remember but we'll get there and discuss it because uh it's a great scene. And like I said, it's not in the books. So there's things to love about the show, but yeah, the first couple seasons are fantastic. Later seasons. The thing that makes me most mad is that they rushed the ending so that they can go make their star Wars movies. And in a, you know, whatever you want to say, cosmetic justice, because the fans had such an adverse reaction to the end of the show, they got their Star Wars movies taken away from them. It was a real monkey's paw situation for Dan and Dave. Honestly, as they should. Yeah, yeah. They should have turned the show over to some other showrunners if they weren't going to focus on it anymore. That concludes this week's episode of the Once Again Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Any questions, comments, or critiques can be addressed to our email at onceagainpod at gmail.com. Follow us on our social media accounts, once again, pod, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. 
If you are feeling generous and would like to contribute to the podcast, we have several tiers available on patreon.com slash once again pod. Also, a like and a share would be greatly appreciated. Thank you and have a wonderful day. And remember, we will entertain you. We will always entertain you. Thank you.